So for those of you that are uh, visiting today, I, I've started a tradition here that was not intentional of reporting bear sightings. And uh, I haven't done it in a few weeks, uh, but we did have a, my wife and I had a bear sighting a week ago yesterday. And the Goodriches had a bear sighting. If you don't know Keith and Janet Goodrich, where are you? Raise your hand over here. So today would be a good day to meet them and ask Keith to show you. They not only had a bear sighting, same day we did a week ago yesterday, they have video of the bear opening a truck door, going into the truck, grabbing a power bar, coming out of the truck, and eating the power bar. So if you'd like to see that video after the service, you can see them. But we have a third bear sighting, and uh, we have a 37-second video to show you. This is not Keith's uh, bear sighting, as you'll see here. Made a stop for cookies. From a few days ago. For free, ready to serve here at the Nestle Toll House store at Heavenly Village State Line in the South Lake Tahoe area. This was about 7 o'clock last night. Employees tell us that there were people inside when the bear came in. It climbed onto the counter and did eat some cookies. Employees shared a video with us, and there you can see uh, police did respond. They eventually guided the bear out of the store and down the sidewalk. And uh, the bear was just like, well, where is the milk now? Right. Well, we were just talking earlier, and he's just doing what we all wanted to do. Yeah, behind the counter, get some cookies. Can I help you? <laughs> all right, so there's three bear sightings. You can call Tuji Silch, the bear guru of Lake Tahoe. Sorry, we got more bear videos. We got, uh, I'm, I'm barely ready for the service today. So you can let me know if this is a, a good tradition or not. We don't do this every week. But there we go. There's your bear sightings uh, for this week. And if you had one, didn't uh, let me know about it, uh, you can uh, see me after the service. All right, shifting gears. Several weeks ago, uh, after the service, uh, one of you uh, came up to me and said something about jealousy that I had never thought about before, had never thought through before, and it was, I think the week that this was preached, 1 Samuel chapter 18, it's on the screen, that verse 9 says, and from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So from chapter 18 until the end of his life, Saul is, is full of jealousy for David. And that impacts our chapter today and is kind of the springboard into today's sermon, which is in large part, in today's text, in large part about friendship. But back to this conversation a few weeks ago, uh, one of you came up to me after the service and said something about jealousy that I had not thought through. Uh, I had never thought through this, this emotion, this affection, this sin, jealousy, that it, perhaps it is the only sin that doesn't involve the hook of pleasure. Uh, adultery can kill you spiritually and your marriage, and the enemy of God bakes the sinner into that with pleasure. Excessive drinking of alcohol, that can kill you spiritually or physically and your marriage, and the enemy of God, he, he bakes people into that through pleasure. There is some satisfaction in pleasure that is there. And for those who have tried meth, it can easily kill you in any relationship that you're in. But the enemy baits the hook with this incredible pleasure. 
But jealousy is not like that at all. Uh, there, there isn't a, a baited hook of a small amount of pleasure that's followed by spiritual death. As we've already heard this morning, the wages of sin is death. Jealousy is, is a torturous sort of sin that does not have any pleasure hook that the enemy uses uh, to to get it. What I'm trying to say is that jealous, jealousy is a terrible and torturous sin. And, and David, and Saul has this jealous eye on David from chapter 18 all the way until his death. And so at the outset of this message, I'm wanting to expose jealousy for what it is. The jealousy of another person's wealth will, will kill your joy. Jealousy of another person's body will kill your joy. Jealousy of another person's authority will kill your joy. Jealousy of another person's spouse will kill your joy. Jealousy of another person's family will kill your joy. Jealousy of another person's fill-in-the-blank will kill your joy. And jealousy of David's success and David's power, his military victories, his appointed, his anointed kingship, by Samuel, the, the rallying of the people, all of these things, Saul is jealous of David. That brings us to chapter 20, where Jonathan, the firstborn son of the king, if there is somebody who should have been jealous, none of us should be, but if someone has all of the circumstances lined up to be jealous it would be the son of the king, the one who would be inheriting the kingdom and, and be the king of Israel, Jonathan. But instead, we see this beautiful, beautiful friendship where Jonathan and David love one another deeply. It's probably not an overstatement to say that their friendship is, is the supreme example of friendship in, in all of Scripture. If it's not the, it's, it's a very close to the top of the list. And their friendship, and our friendships, the friendships that God wants you and me, either that you already have, or a big part of the sermon is that you would have aspirations for strong friendships, or a friendship, someone that you really love. It is the opposite of jealousy. And that brings us to our text today, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Hope you have your Bibles open or your devices open as we're going to be going through verse 17 today. Let's begin taking a look at what was just read, the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. So David fled from Nioth at Ramah, where Saul was, and he went to Jonathan, and he asked, so he says to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my cry? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? So he's pouring out his heart to his close friend Jonathan. And look at Jonathan's response in verse 2. Never. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. Pause here for a moment. So what we have are these two 
closest of friends on opposite pages about Saul, about the father of one of the closest friends. David thinks and knows that he is trying to take his life. Jonathan knows that his father has done something like that in the past, both with Jonathan and with David, actually. But he doesn't think that that is what is going on now. In fact, Jonathan is saying, essentially in verse 2, I, I know my dad, and I know when he's up to bad, up to evil, and he, is, he ain't up to that right now. This isn't going to happen. So we have two of, the, two of the, the closest friends in all of Scripture, perhaps. And they are on different pages. Now before we see how this gets resolved and continue to move through the text, if you haven't been here or you just need a reminder, uh, I, I want to remind you of, of just the, the beauty and the intimacy of this friendship of David and Jonathan. Look back again at chapter 18 on the screen with me, verse 1. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. I just want to stop here for just a moment. I want this to sink into us, and maybe the best way to do it is to think about replacing Jonathan's name with your own. And David's name with another man, if you're a man, with another woman, if you're a woman. And just think about if you could possibly say this about someone. That, that if I use my name, that, that, that my soul was knit together with another brother that I love so deeply, that I love him as my own soul. This is strong friendship and strong language that the Bible is describing. And, and then verse 3 says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. I am wanting at the outset of the sermon to, to raise into our minds and our hearts and our emotions the priority and the importance and the beauty and the intimacy of friendship with God at the center of it between a, a man and a man or a woman and a woman. I'm wanting this to hit us. This is what is, is, is in all of these chapters really with David and Jonathan, including chapter 20. Now, they're not on the same page, coming back to our text, about Saul. And so they've got to work through this. Let's come back to the text and look at verses 3 and 4. But David took an oath. So, so David is extremely confident in his position here. So the reader, the careful reader, is, obser is observing that, that David thinks he sees what's going on, and he thinks he sees that Jonathan doesn't know what's going on. So he takes an oath. Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said it to himself. Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. So David, under oath, a thing that was common in the ancient Near East, is saying, this is reality. This is the truth of, of your dad. 
a Jonathan. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. I don't know that there's anyone here, maybe a few of you who have been in the military and in war. Probably few of us here know what it's like to live a step between me and death with the sense of someone who has power and authority to kill me is trying to kill me. That is the environment that David is living in. And the one who has the power and the authority and ability to kill him is his closest covenantal friend, his friend's father. So look at Jonathan's response, verse 4. What, John, he says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Not for my father, not for my family, but for you. So the relationship, the God-centered friendship between David and Jonathan is taking priority over Jonathan's relationship to his father, who is the king. This is a big deal. This is in a culture where respecting and honoring your father is not only something that is culturally popular and expected. I'd like to think of some great virtuous thing that is so popular and expected in our culture. But regrettably, we don't have a lot of things in our culture in California. I'm not talking about church culture. We don't have a lot of things that are in line with Scripture, that are extremely God-glorifying. But this would be one of them in that culture, this fifth commandment culture, to honor your father and mother even as adults, not as children, where you obey your parents, but that you honor your father in the way that you live. So in verse 4, there is a departure, not only from culture, but from, there's a conflict, right? The life of a believer is, is, is a messy life. Do, do, I, do I obey the fifth commandment here, honoring my father and mother, or, or, or do I, am I faithful to my covenant friend, uh, David? That is the situation that Jonathan is in. So what we have here, I have just two points this morning. Number one is that the discerning believer does not absolutize the fifth commandment, honoring your father and mother. He has only one God. This is, this is an unusual kind of point to teach here. I, I, I'm teaching there are complicated situations in life where you have to make a, a, a bad decision a decision that, that you don't want to have to make to go against your father, but this is one where he has to make that decision. And so you might actually say, well, he's actually honoring the fifth commandment if his father is doing something evil by not being on the side of his father. But he's saying in verse 4, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. The loyalty is to this God-centered friendship, not to the father and king. <coughs> who is doing evil. We see the same commitment. Jump your, on your eyes down to verse 9 if you have your Bibles open. He says there, Jonathan says, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you 
I'm on your side if my father is doing evil, if my father is homicidal, if my father has these actual plans, I would tell you I am with you. So, the discerning believer does not absolutize the fifth commandment. He has only one God. This, this, is, this is difficult, but this is something that we want to clearly see, and this is most astonishing in this ancient Near Eastern culture where respecting and honoring family in general, and parents in particular, was huge. Uh, just to remind you, many of you know this, their laws were, were pretty serious about this. Um, Leviticus 20 and verse 9 is one of their laws. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Obviously, Jonathan is not cursing his father here. I'm putting this up here simply to say this is a radical departure from what would be expected culturally. And this is right and appropriate because God is at the center of their friendship. A lot of today's message is kind of the opposite of jealousy. Instead of jealousy, we see this incredible friendship from the one who you would think would be jealous but they have this incredible, beautiful friendship. And whenever we read the Old Testament, we want to read it in light of the New Testament. We want to connect it with the New Testament. And Jesus teaches about the complexity of relationships within our family structures in Matthew chapter 10. Take a look on the screen with me of what Jesus says. Surprising statement. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to, and before we continue, what would cause him to say that? What would cause him to say that I didn't come to bring peace on the earth? And then I'm quoting here on the screen from the New American Standard Bible, which puts quotes from the Old Testament in capital letters. So this is a quote from Micah. So Matthew quotes Micah here, set a man against his father, for I came to set a man against his father and, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is prophesied and brought up by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, and then finally he says this in 10, finally for today, out of Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The point here is not to love your father or your children less. The point here is that Jesus is supreme in our lives. And when Jesus is Lord of your life, Jesus is saying to us, his followers, that there is going to be division in your families with those who do not follow me. And your allegiance is to me. It's to me. This is what we see long before Jesus lived. A thousand years before Jesus lived. This is what we see Jonathan living out in this covenantal, powerful, special, close friendship with Jonathan. In his commentary on Matthew 10, D.A. Carson writes this. He says, a man must love his wife, family, friends, and even his enemies, but he must love Jesus supremely. 
this chapter and this sermon, and really all of the chapters right around here with David and Jonathan, have so much to say about the importance for believers to have close, close friends. One writer writes this. Uh, he says, friendship is far more important and far more wonderful than I had ever imagined. And this is part of what I believe the Bible teaches and what we are to realize today. One of the main reasons for this text and this sermon today is for you and I to understand that friendship, biblically speaking, is very likely more important, more wonderful, and should be more of a priority, something that you aspire to in your life than you realize. We're going to look at more scripture in a moment in the New Testament that speaks to that. But th th this is this is huge. And one of the ways we see how huge it is is that David, that, that Jonathan's loyalty is to his friendship that has God at the very center of the friendship, whereas relationship with his father does not have God at the center of it. And so his relationship with his covenant friend is taking priority. And that is something clearly that we should see in this text. So let's come back to our text now. And look at verses 5 uh, through 8. So they're, they're working this out. Jonathan says, hey, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. He makes these, these really categorical statements about his commitment to his friend. Verse 5. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon festival. This is a, a time of celebration and partying and, and so on. And I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, <clears throat> tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, if, if your father says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. Just pause here for a moment. So a couple things just commenting on these verses. Uh, first of all, uh, did you notice it, David's line here? Did you notice that? So when we read a narrative passage like this, the Bible is, is, is describing uh, what is going on, but it is not always prescribing what should be going on. So there's probably a way to do this without doing what he did here. This is not the primary point of the passage, but I just thought I should, should point that out. Uh, David could have come up with a better way, but another comment to say here is he knows, David knows that Saul is going to be angry. He knows what's going to happen. And so he's, he's trying to show and have his close friend know where his father's heart is really at, where Saul's heart is at. Back to verse 8. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. I mean, this seems like an astonishing statement to us, but 
David is, is thinking, the king wants me dead. I'm, I'm probably going to die. I'd rather die by the hand of my close friend if I'm guilty of something. I, I, I'd be honored to be die by you, but, but why hand me over to your father? We already looked at verse 9 again, but this is where he says, never. I would never do that. I would, I would let you know what is going on. So I, I wanted to point out uh, that, that, that godly people are not perfect people. David is not perfect in the way he has laid the situation out, but the reader sees what, what he's trying to accomplish. Let's go back to our text here and, and go through the rest of the passage, uh, 10 through 17. So David asked, Who will tell me uh, if your father answers you harshly? So he's going to be gone for a few days. Uh, who, who, who's going to tell me? So verse 11, Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into to the field. So they went there together. You could preach almost a whole sermon on just verse 11 and the importance of spending time together. Lots of time together. Jonathan and David spent lots of time together. If, you're, if you don't have a very close friend, man to man, woman to woman, one of the things you need to think about is how can I spend a lot of time with someone? If you can't, the likelihood of you having a close friendship is going to be very small. These guys are constantly spending time together. So he's asking questions, like, hey, let, let's go into the field. And so they, they went there together. They're together, chapter after chapter, all of these things. Verse 12. Then Jonathan says to David, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father, by this time, the day after tomorrow, at, at the party, at the celebration, I'll figure it out. If he is favorably disposed toward you, David, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. This is the relationship taking priority. God is at the center of that relationship. And then, I'm still in verse 13. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So what he's referring to here, we have to go back a few chapters, but you might remember it was a short period, but there was a time where the Spirit was upon Saul and he was doing good things. And Israel was thriving and they were winning their battles. And this is what this is what a son wants to believe about his father. This is what I want to believe is what characterizes my father. Now, it's true this actually happened, but, but the reader knows this has been kind of the exception and not the rule. And so again, the careful reader here, uh, it, it's, it's, it's this wishful thinking. I want my dad to be a certain way. I remember the way he was, and I want you I want, may the Lord be with you as he was with my father, would be another way to translate verse 13. But we can hear the logging of a son who's, who's disappointed in his dad, but remembers when, man, my dad was doing great things back then. And, and do you remember that? The Lord was with him, the Spirit was upon him. Verse 14. So this dialogue in the field, two close friends spending time together, Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live. Uh, again, man to man, woman to woman, 
I think God wants us to aspire to have, maybe we're not going to reach this level, but something close to this. Can you imagine yourself saying this to a friend? Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. He, he knows that life may be ended, so he's, he, he's reminding him of the vow. And this is a really pretty extraordinary, it's just two words, so in my Bible, I've circled unfailing kindness like that of the Lord. All of those English words translate two words in Hebrew. The, the, the word hesed and the word for the Lord, or Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Just two words. It's really hard to communicate those two words. And so I don't know what your translation says, but it probably has a whole slew of words too. Probably very few translations say loving kindness of the Lord, or loyal love of the Lord, or unending kindness and love that has God at the center of it. That's what this verse is saying. Show me that as long as I live so, so, so that I will not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. So not just me. But he recognizes that God's anointing is on David and David is actually already and spiritually the king. Functionally he's about to become the king. But here he recognizes he is the anointed king. So he, he's looking beyond his own life and David continuing as king and saying, I want this kindness that you've shown to me to go to my family. Even when the Lord has cut off everyone of David's enemies from the face of the earth. He's no, he knows, Jonathan knows, that he's going to be on the throne and is going to reign as king. Two more verses, 16 and 17. Still some more preaching, but just two more verses. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath, it would also be translated as vow, the NASB or New King James Version, if you have that, says vow. Jonathan had David reaffirm his vow, a vow of friendship, and out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Second point today is this. That God wants you and me to maximize our joy through committed Christian friendship that is characterized by two things. And we're going to look at some New Testament passages briefly in just a moment by sacrifice, and I wrote here, and share anythingness, or confidentiality, or trustedness. These are two things that characterize David and Jonathan's relationship, and Jesus speaks about friendship as well, and these are the things that he speaks about as well. That a special, God-centered if you want to call it covenantal friendship, I, I, to me it's not important what you call it, but that we have these God-centered friendships, the two things that are foundational to what that friendship looks like is sacrifice for the other with God at the center, and that I can share anything with that friend. I can share the thing that I'm afraid to share with anyone else. I can share with that friend. 
If you don't have a friend like that, God, I believe, is communicating to us as a church, as individuals, through his word today, that you should aspire for a friendship like that. Sam Alberry is a guy that I have learned a lot from, and jumped ahead there. He said this, he said, there is an appalling deficit of friendship in many of our churches. And I think this is true. He's a pastor. He is an elder, a pastor, a, a celibate, same-sex attracted man who is, has taught me a lot. He's saying there is an appalling deficit of friendship in many of our churches. We have in 1 Samuel one of the most beautiful examples of friendship in all of Scripture. But as I said, whenever we're reading the Old Testament, we want to connect it. We want to read it in light of the Gospel, in light of the New Testament, and we want to connect it with teaching in the New Testament. So I want to briefly look at just a couple verses in John 15 on the screen. Jesus is talking with the twelve. He says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. So he, he, he's talking to, 12, to the twelve men he has spent most, he spent three years with, day in and day out. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay his life down for his wife. For his husband, or for her husband, or for his husband, for that matter. He didn't say those things. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. For his friends. So, as you look at this text of scripture on the screen, the way that we should respond, I think, in this moment to this passage, is not that it's not likely that anyone in here is going to have to surrender their lives. Unless you're in the military or some unusual situation, it is very unlikely you are going to like be in a situation that Jonathan is in, or David is in, where they might actually lose their lives because of their friendship. It is very unlikely that any of us will see that. But what we sh the way that we should respond to this is, God, would you help me to be the kind of friend that would long to, to have that kind of love, even though I'm probably never going to be in that situation where I'm actually giving my life for a friend. But would you, woman to woman, man to man, give me that kind of love? That's his command. This is his command that we lay down our lives for our friends. That you 12, that you followers of me in 2022 in the foothills in Northern California, that you would have this kind of love for each other. One more thing he says about friendship, as we are essentially developing a theology, not of casual friendship, but of covenantal or committed or God-centered friendship at the very highest level. That's really what we're talking about today. John 15, a couple verses later. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. 
Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. A word for that might be intimacy. Everything I have learned from the Father. Jesus had no sins, but he had intimacy with the Father. And everything that I learned from the Father, he has shared with his friends. And if you read Mark's Gospel, for example, Jesus is constantly trying to get away from the crowd to be with the twelve, to spend time with them, to be intimate with them, and to share trusted, confidential things with them. God, the Christian life, is a life of joy. If we are missing joy, one of the things that may be missing is committed Christian friendship that is characterized by sacrifice and by sharing those intimate things. This is what is in 1 Samuel 20. This is what is also in Matthew chapter, John chapter 15 rather, and Matthew chapter 10, but also in John chapter 15. So I want to close out here today um, very briefly. Look, look with me again at verse 17. So one of the, you, you may not even be familiar with this issue, I probably don't need to go here, but in our small group we talked about this uh, Friday night, so I, I'm, I'm talking about this now, you, you may not be aware of this. But in verse 17 where it says, uh, David had him reaffirm his vow out of love for him. What you may not be aware of is that throughout church history, there have been periods of church history in certain contexts and cultures uh, around the globe where there were vows made for friendships like we do for a wedding. There were vows for that. And it's obviously here in 1 Samuel 20. So then the question comes up, well, should this be something that we do? Is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? Is this something we want to do? So I want to hit this very briefly. And my, uh, one of the leaders I look to, this guy Sam Alberry from a church in Nashville, he, he writes this. He says, it seems to me that resurrecting vowed friendships will only add to the current confusion about friendship. He says, it's hard to imagine such friendships, that is, friendships where we would say vows to one another, as they did in 1 Samuel 20, not being confused with sexual partnerships. We also need to be mindful of the potential danger, particularly for two friends with same-sex attraction, of fostering unhealthy intimacy and of emotional over-dependency. So the solution, the reason I put this on here, I know most of you probably were not thinking about that today, but you should be thinking now about how do I actually get there? If you are, whether you're lonely, or whether you have lots of friends, or anyone here who, who says, I do not have a David and Jonathan relationship, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I think that would be a lot of us. We did this in our small group, the overwhelming majority of us would not have put our would put our hands up. I do not have our Jonathan and David kind of relationship, man to man, woman to woman. The way to get there, I don't think, are, is vows, and that's why I am bringing this up. How do we get there? Well, we get there uh, by prayer and by providence. We get there by participating in a small group, uh, so and, and praying for friendships to develop. 
we, we, we get there by, by spending time with others. And I want to pray for that in just a moment. I want to close today with this quote from a guy named C.R. Mustin. Never heard of him before, but I came across his book this week. I, I like just the title. And this is only, there's a much longer title. This is like the abbreviated title. You know, in 1740, they had really long titles of books. Christian Friendship on Earth Perpetuated in Heaven. And I, I thought about that title, and, you know, Jesus teaches that, our, our marriage, that there is no marriage in heaven. Friendships are, are perpetuated in heaven, but, but, but not marriage. We don't have time to get into that now. But again, I'm just trying to raise the level of the importance of Christian friendship. And Jesus models the importance of that. Someone who never married our Lord, but had close friends. C.R. Mustin, he writes this. It would therefore have been somewhat remarkable had our Lord passed through the world without entering into the union, meaning the union of Christian friendship, and participating in the pleasures of virtuous friendship. Jesus spent time with the twelve, and then within that twelve, there was Peter, there was John, there was James. Maybe we'll close with this picture. We're seeing a lot of pictures of friendship that seem, especially to men, and maybe to women as well, uh, what I'm saying is women tend to be better at friendship than men are, in my experience and observation. But maybe the image to close today with is Jesus at a meal with twelve. And his closest, or the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we know is John, is very close to him. They're having conversation, and they are close enough spiritually, emotionally, in every way, that John puts his head on the chest of Jesus at dinner with the other men. That is not the kind of manhood we have in the church today. We do not have that kind of affection and love and intimacy for one another. Where, where we are so close at a meal that I might put my head in the most God-glorifying way on the chest of another man in a way that is beautiful. The form isn't what's important, right? Am I saying we all need to put our heads on chests? <laughs> Say no. <laughs> I think you get what I'm saying here. There, there, are, there are functional equivalents of putting my head on the chest of a man that I'm really close to. Might be a bear hunt. Get bears at the beginning and the end here of the sermon. It might be, I don't know what it would look like. This is what we need among men and among women. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for word. We thank you for this beautiful friendship from David and Jonathan. We thank you for teaching in the New Testament on friendship. Uh, I may have overstated the situation today. There are probably many beautiful friendships in here, and for those, we are very thankful. But for those of us here that are lonely, or for those of us who do not have anything near 
a Jonathan and David kind of friendship. For a man with another man, or a woman with another woman, Lord, I pray that these would be aspired to, and they would be found. If someone here needs help with that, they could write on a prayer card, and we can help you in that. Maybe your step is to, to, to join a small group. Maybe your step is to pick up the phone and invite someone to lunch. I don't know. But I'm praying that God would have you and me respond to this passage today. And in Jesus' name, and for his kingdom.